Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. So the court is about to come back from its winter break and start its February sitting. Today, we're bringing you a deep dive preview of the first case the court will hear argued this month on the 22nd, Florida against Georgia. It's an original jurisdiction case, a state versus state battle that goes straight to the justices, and it's about a pretty important thing, water rights. Naturally, there's some big environmental consequences at play here, so this week we're turning it over to our producer, David Schultz, who also co-hosts Bloomberg Law's environmental podcast, Parts Per Billion. Kimberly and I will be back next week giving you a sneak peek of the following week's arguments, but for now, take it away, David. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the Flint River flowing downstream in southwestern Georgia. If it were up to Georgia's neighbor, Florida, that river would have a lot more water in it than it does right now. The Flint River rises just outside of Atlanta and flows all the way down to the state line. That's where it meets up with another river, the Chattahoochee, to form a third river, the Apalachicola. That third river, the Apalachicola, then flows from the state line and cuts right across Florida's panhandle before emptying into the Apalachicola Bay in the Gulf of Mexico. Or at least, that's how it's all supposed to work. Lately, the Apalachicola River has been getting weaker and weaker, depositing hardly any fresh water into the bay. Where's it going instead? Well, that's the question that's at the heart of a multi-decade conflict between two neighboring states. We heard from Casey Cox, uh, who's a farmer in southwestern Georgia, and her fields lie right on the Flint River. We grow fresh market sweet corn, peanuts, soybeans, field corn, and timber on our farm. One fun fact about the Flint River is that it actually begins underneath the Atlanta airport. Uh, it, it's a very humble little creek that goes underneath a sidewalk on the sprawling Atlanta airport. And uh, it obviously expands and becomes a, a really beautiful and large river as it flows south. The Supreme Court case has been at the forefront of my mind ever since I moved back. It actually was filed the same year that I graduated from college and moved back to the farm. And one of the reasons I have been so involved in as many conversations as possible around this issue because it it could have a huge impact on my future. I made the decision to come back to the farm, to take over this farm as our family business. And what happens in this case could alter the trajectory of that of that decision. It could it could have implications, long-term implications for me and other farmers in our community. And Jennifer Kay has been tracking that conflict for Bloomberg Law. She's our Florida correspondent based in Miami. I spoke to Jennifer earlier this week about the people on both sides of the state line who will be affected by whatever the court does here. And Jennifer talked about how the case is way more complicated than it seems. It seems like a really simple question, but it's a decades-long case at this point. Florida says Georgia is using too much water in the river basin that they share. And Florida says that's cutting off the supply of fresh water to a bay in the panhandle that needs it, called Apalachicola Bay. And Florida says the lack of fresh water is just ruining life for the wild oysters there and also the oystermen who depended on those oysters for their livelihood. Uh, Georgia says none of this is true and that it's only using about half as much water as Florida claims. 
And I know oysters might seem like a really small thing here to be arguing about, but the Apalachicola Bay used to provide 10% of the wild oysters harvested in the United States, and almost 90%, that's almost all of the wild oysters caught in Florida. So it's not just a water problem, it's a real economic problem. Yeah, and as you mentioned, this has been going on for a long time. Uh, that's kind of an understatement. Uh, I think one of the reasons why this is such a unique case is because it's one state suing another state, and as a result, it goes right to the Supreme Court. It doesn't pass the lower courts. It goes right up there. So this is one of those cases where if we were still a loose confederation of states instead of the United States, we would need diplomatic intervention here. Uh, otherwise, the two states would just go to war over this water. Whoa. So it it's kind of a big deal in that way. Um, it's a unique kind of case called original jurisdiction. It only involves states, and the states go directly to the Supreme Court instead of the uh, usual back and forth in lower courts that you see in typical lawsuits. So this specific lawsuit started in 2013 at the Supreme Court, but Florida and Georgia have been fighting over this water in the Chattahoochee, Flint, and Apalachicola rivers since the 1990s. At one point, Alabama and the Army Corps of Engineers were involved. There was a water compact between the states, but that expired in 2003. So things have been pretty bitter for a while now. So let's get to the people on the ground who are affected by this. Um, And let's start with Georgia. Casey and other farmers in southwest Georgia, where, by the way, they produce more peanuts and pecans than anywhere else in the country, um, they're not drawing water directly from the Flint River so much. They're mostly using water from wells dug into the aquifer beneath them. Uh, There's a lot of hydrology at work here. There is some relation between the wells and the river, but primarily their water comes from the aquifer. Um, But that doesn't mean that they have an endless supply of water. The state of Georgia has already capped drilling into that aquifer because of some intense droughts. So their options for getting more water already are limited. They can't really go to deeper wells and deeper aquifers, um, and they can't change to different crops that might use less water because those options would be too expensive. And by the way, we're, we heard from Casey, who uh, is in southwestern Georgia. There's another user of water uh, in this uh, this river basin that is not a farmer. Uh, it is the metro Atlanta area. That's uh, another thing that we haven't discussed. They're a pretty big water user, too, as well. I, I get the sense. Something like six million people, I think, live in the metro Atlanta area, according to the court documents. Um, But what Georgia's lawyers say, uh, and some other interested parties that have filed uh, documents in the case, um, their argument is that Georgia is pretty good at conserving water. Um, They have implemented a lot of conservation standards in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, Casey and the farmers in southwest Georgia have been working to conserve water through more efficient irrigation systems. but what they still need are stable sources of water when droughts come. So the stakes are high for people like Casey, for farmers in that part of the state, but the stakes are enormous for the folks downriver in Florida. Uh, There was a meeting of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission last year where they made permanent a five-year moratorium on oyster harvesting in Apalachicola Bay. Here's a clip from that meeting. 
As with any decision, there are several things to take into consideration. We recognize that suspending harvest is a big step, but we also believe it's our last option to recover oysters and rebuild this fishery. So Jennifer, that's five years without any oyster harvesting. Why did they take this measure? Like this is, seems like a pretty extreme step to, to do. So try to imagine New England without lobsters, and you kind of get the idea of how serious the situation is in Apalachicola Bay. Um, the oysters have always had good years and bad years and big harvests and small harvests, but something happened around 2012 that really saw the population spiral downward really fast, and it just didn't rebound like it had in the years before. So there are some people who say that the state should have shut down these harvests years ago. Is it just is it because of the salinity? Is it because there used to be this freshwater source, you know, mixing with the salt water and now it's not there and it's just all salt water? Is that what's going on? So yes, oysters need a kind of perfect balance between salt water and fresh water in order to really thrive. And that's part of what gives them their unique flavor. This bay used to have fresh water flowing pretty freely down the Apalachicola River into the bay, which then fed into the Gulf of Mexico. And there are locals who say you could really see a difference in the water. The fresh water was much darker because it was full of nutrients that it picked up on its way into the bay. And then the Gulf water was that bright emerald green because it's so salty. And now, after years and years of low water flow, the whole bay often looks entirely green, like it's just part of the Gulf of Mexico. And the river can look green six miles upriver. People have said they've seen sharks from the Gulf swimming up the river because it's so salty. And the salt isn't all that good for the oyster. It's much better for the predators that eat oysters in the water. So the oysters are just not thriving the way that they used to. Right. So I guess they shut down harvesting for five years because they were worried that oysters would go extinct in this in this bay. Uh, so I understand why they did it. But as necessary as it might have been, this really shut down a whole way of life down on the Apalachicola Bay. Um, Ricky Jones, a commissioner of Franklin County, uh, the Franklin County Board of Supervisors, which is uh, on the panhandle, you know, he said that Apalachicola oysters used to be famous throughout the Gulf um now not so much franklin county now is a one industry county uh it being tourism because seafood is effectively done away uh in all that's going on you must remember and i know i'm sure you're aware that Apalachicola bay oysters is a brand it is a market and the longer it's off the market that's going to be a market share that's gone not sure what it would take to ever get it back once it's people find another source. Yeah, locals talk about the meroir of the Apalachicola Bay oysters. You, you know how they talk about the terroir for wine, all the environmental factors that give a vintage its distinct flavor? Well, oysters apparently have a meroir. I just learned a new word today. It, it's not, I'm not making it up. It's a real word. <laughs> um, but I, I spoke with a fourth-generation oysterman in Apalachicola who stopped harvesting oysters himself in 2012 because of what he saw happening in the bay. He misses it, but he says he's optimistic that the bay and the oysters will come back, given enough time and resources and water. 
There is oyster farming happening in the bay that's unaffected by the harvest closures. It's really the wild oysters that came to market and gave Apalachicola the cachet that it enjoyed for decades. There's really no question that things have changed. There's really no question that things have changed dramatically. A local trucking industry that used to drive the oysters from the Panhandle to New York City or other northern states is pretty much gone. The yearly seafood festival in Apalachicola now gets its oysters from other states instead of its own bay, and former oystermen have moved away to find work elsewhere. So there is a lot of damage that needs to be overcome for the bay and its community to really come back. Uh, all right, finally, let's take a, a big step back. Uh, and this question applies to uh, Florida and Georgia, but it really applies to anyone who is waiting on a Supreme Court ruling to decide their future. Casey talked about this uh, and she said, you know, what it's like waiting for, you know, some nine people in black robes uh, in DC to decide what's gonna happen to your community. I know that that both sides have called in experts and, and people who who are in the midst of all this, but there's so much complexity in, in this river system and in our, our economies that are intertwined. And it's really frightening <laughs> to, uh, to know that the court system could be the one to make a determination that changes, changes what we have to do for our business in the future. Agriculture is already an extremely risky and uncertain business to be in. And it's difficult to know that there are these external factors out of our control and, and people that are not part of our communities and, and part of our system that could make one decision and have lifetime implications. So when can we expect a resolution to this conflict? Well, both states lawyers are going to argue before the Supreme Court on February 22nd, and the court is expected to give us a ruling by the summer. Um, Things have already generally leaned in Georgia's favor, though. Uh, the court appointed two special masters over the, the past few years to consider evidence in the case. And both of them have said, yes, Florida oysters have suffered, but they didn't pin all the blame on Georgia. Generally, downstream states like Florida always have to meet a much higher burden in these types of water fights. So it would be a really big deal if the court came back and sided with Florida this time around, especially because as the climate changes, we're going to expect to see more of these kinds of cases with states fighting over shared resources. Okay, well, so it sounds like we're going to get a ruling this summer uh, or maybe before this summer that could uh, you know, definitively answer this question. But the Supreme Court has been known to issue very vague and confusing uh, rulings that don't necessarily answer all the questions. Is it possible that we could have a muddled, maybe uh, a multiple opinion type ruling where we still just don't have a, a good solution to this problem? What has happened previously in this case at the Supreme Court is the justices have produced rulings that are five to four, very close rulings in Georgia's favor, in Florida's favor, in Georgia's favor. It, it's going to be a tight decision either way. And given the history of this case, which goes back to the 1990s in multiple courtrooms at multiple levels, I, I don't think the fight is necessarily over. What, what people in Florida 
some what some people in Florida would like to see happen is for the court to instead of deciding one way or the other to say, look, we can have the Army Corps of Engineers or some other entity manage the water so that both sides get a fair share. But we'll we'll just have to see what they say. That was Jennifer Kay, a Bloomberg Law correspondent based in Miami. Today's episode of Cases and Controversies was produced by myself, David Schultz, along with Jennifer Kay, Jessica Coombs, Cheryl Sains, Kathy Rizzo, and Ellen Gilmer. Special thanks to Casey Cox for her assistance. For more news about the Supreme Court, check out our website, news.bloomberglaw.com. Jordan and Kimberly will be back next week to give you a sneak peek of the upcoming SCOTUS arguments. Until then, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Laura Carlson, and I'm dropping into your feed to tell you about Prognosis, a new daily show from Bloomberg. Monday through Friday, we'll spend a few minutes with you every afternoon to help you understand life in the time of COVID-19. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So come back every afternoon for our coverage and stay safe.